Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, December 9th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The year's top 10 library stories are just out. Yeah, always a really fascinating piece for me to put together every year to look back on the big library stories of 2022 and, of course, what those stories portend for the year ahead. And I think this year may have been one of the most intense years yet when it comes to the library world. And I'm not just saying this because it's one of my beats here at PW. I really believe that libraries are the most interesting sector of the book world because libraries pretty much encapsulate every aspect of the publishing business, right? You have the the very basic issues like literacy and the health of our democracy. And of course, libraries are big business too. And, you know, this, all of this was especially true in 2022, where we saw the continuation of book bans, some major copyright skirmishes, and like a lot of big books and libraries. Book bans were the top story on your list last year, Andrew, and book bans figure prominently on the list this year too. Yeah. In fact, in all three of the top spots, you know, basically uh, the top three stories are really sort of a bunch of stories uh, that occurred in the library world. And as you say, they all involve this pernicious wave of book bans and challenges to the freedom to read, which really continued to surge in communities across the nation in 2022. Uh, and what's truly alarming, observers tell me, is that the attacks on libraries and schools only appear to be intensifying. Uh, it's sort of this national political movement uh, that's been uh, ginned up to sort of attack LGBTQ books and books on race. Uh, it's this nationally supported movement that's being executed at the local level under the guise of parents' rights. Uh, and as I said, the top three spots are really all about this wave of book bans this year, but each is kind of a separate story. So I felt like to lump them all together uh, it's just one story, you know, sort of like, you know, book bans was really not the best way to approach this. Uh, it doesn't really do the issues justice, nor does it really capture the scope of the issues here and all the various fronts that book banning is sort of, you know, unfolding upon. So topping the list this year, number one on the spot was the numbers, really, you know, the, the numbers which tell a very disturbing tale. There was in April, the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom released this annual banned books report, announcing that they tracked some 729 challenges involving almost 1,600 individual titles. And that's the highest number of challenges since ALA began compiling its data some 20 years ago. Uh, and then furthermore, during Banned Books Week, uh, ALA officials said the number of challenges through the first eight months of this year, through the first eight months of 2022, were on pace to shatter the already record-shattering numbers in 2021. Then, of course, we had free speech defender Pen America, which also released some alarming numbers in 2022. They found 1,586 attempted book bans in 86 school districts across 26 states. And in their own update in September, also during Banned Books Week, uh, Pen officials said that that number had actually swelled to more than 2,500. Uh, and both ALA and Penn, again, point out that the overwhelming majority of these book challenges in 2022 involved LGBTQ plus authors and themes or issues of race and social justice. But in fact, it's like more than the numbers. It's really the headlines and stories sort of behind these rising numbers of book bans that I think really speak to where, where things stand in 2022. Uh, for example, in a number of communities, we saw far right groups like the Proud Boys who were actually showing up at children's events 
to like intimidate library staff and, and parents. Uh, in Louisiana, you had a local librarian named Amanda Jones who actually sued two groups for defamation after being harassed online when she showed up to speak in defense of her public library's collection policies. In Leno County, Texas, library supporters actually sued in federal court, charging county officials with violating their First Amendment rights and also for wrongly firing a librarian who refused an order to remove books from library shelves. And, of course, in a story that's generating national headlines, uh, the Patmos Library in Michigan was actually defunded by voters in November after librarians refused to pull a handful of books involving LGBTQ themes from library shelves. And, you know, in all of these cases and in many, many more cases around the nation, a common theme has emerged. Librarians and administrators being falsely accused of grooming children and of distributing pornography. Uh, so that's pretty much the top story in a nutshell. This was the top library story in 2021 as well, as you know. And you know, I think what we're seeing is that with this politically motivated effort to ban books, we're seeing a, a assault on the freedom to read that's really unprecedented. And not only is it still here, it's actually growing in scale and intensity. Where else do library and or school-related book bans fit on your list? Yeah, so in the next two spots, you know, separate but related stories, really a bunch of stories again. The second spot was really about the rise of this state-level legislation that's impacting the freedom to read. And, you know, this is different from book challenges that we sort of talk about in the first thing on our list because, you know, most of those challenges are brought to local or school library boards. Well, this is state-level stuff. And it's about changing the system so that lawmakers take on the right to tell librarians what they can and cannot have on their shelves or what teachers can and can't have in their classrooms. And in 2022, we saw a lot of these laws. In March, most famously, I think, you had Governor Ron DeSantis, who signed HB 1467, one of a suite of laws in what Ron DeSantis called his you know, so-called year of the parent. That bill would require Florida public schools to list all their instructional materials, including library books, and make them available for like uh, a public review process. In April, in Tennessee, legislators passed a new law called SB 2247, I believe, that would vest the state textbook commission, not local teachers and librarians, with the ability to make final decisions on whether a challenge book can remain available in school libraries. Also in April in Kentucky, lawmakers passed SB 167, uh, a new law that critics say are going to politicize library boards because it's going to give local elected judges really broad power to appoint basically whomever they want to local library boards, and also the power to veto large expenditures. In October, this one's getting a lot of headlines recently, uh, the Missouri Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, made national headlines by proposing what he called a new uh, protection of minors rule for libraries that would prohibit funds from being used for any materials deemed to appeal to the prurient interests of any minor. Now, who would make those determinations? It's not really clear. Uh, it would also require librarians to somehow enforce a parent or guardian's decision about what their minor child can access in the library. And mind you, a minor child is defined as anyone under the, under the age of 18. So having a 17-year-old not be able to check a book out of a library certainly seems a little extreme. Uh, and of course, that proposed rule from Jay Ashcroft follows the passage of another law in Missouri this year, SB 775, 
which makes providing explicit sexual material to students a Class A misdemeanor that's actually punishable by jail time and a hefty fine. In November, PEN America officials issued a report that said that fear of prosecution under this new law has already led to the banning of some 300 titles across 11 Missouri school districts. And you'll finally, here's one I bring up because it's sure to get publishers' attention. We talked about it a little bit on this show. Texas State Representative Tom Oliverson proposed uh, HB 338 on the opening day of the filing period for the upcoming 2023 legislative session. And that bill would actually force publishers to create an age-appropriate rating system for all books sold to Texas school libraries. And here's the kicker. The bill would also give the state the power to direct publishers to change those ratings if state officials disagree with them. And if the publishers refuse to change those ratings, it gives the state officials the power to bar schools in the state from doing business with those publishers. And in the third spot, is you know the idea that these laws in the various states and also at the local level, but really these state laws have really gotten the attention of Congress, right? In April and in May, the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties held two hearings on the coordinated attacks on the freedom to read in libraries and schools. And at the hearing in May, uh, committee co-chair Jamie Raskin called the proliferation of these laws taking aim at books, especially books on race and LGBTQ books. He called these laws the hallmark of authoritarian regimes. Now, whether or not the government can do much to stop this wave of book banning remains to be seen, but it's an opening. And it's one that librarians and freedom to read advocates and publishers will almost certainly want to take advantage of if we hope to chill this wave of book bans in the coming year. In Monday's PW, Andrew, you preview the American Library Association's newest program, LibLearnX, which will debut in New Orleans in January. Tell us what librarians and publishers can expect to find in the Big Easy besides music and food. Music and food, for sure. As for the other, what else they're going to find there, I'm not really sure. You know, the return to in-person library conferences was a big story in 2022. It's on our list, right, for, of the top 10 stories of the year. The Public Library Association was able to draw 5,000 to Portland, Oregon in March. And the big one, of course, the ALA Annual Conference returned uh, for the first time since 2019 in Washington, in Washington D.C., But in January comes a real big test, right? The first ever in-person edition of this uh, nascent winter event, LibLearnX. It's going to be, as you say, January 27th to 30 at the Ernest and Morial Convention Center in New Orleans. Now, a little backstory here, because LibLearnX, our listeners may know or may not, it's the successor to the ALA's midwinter meeting, which was phased out in 2021 with a virtual-only show. And LibLearnX comes after like five years of planning, I want to say. I think 2018 is when it really began being planned in earnest. And, you know, frankly, the midwinter meeting had kind of stopped working for members, right? Like the show was always a place where ALA business got done. Uh, different committees and groups would get together at midwinter and they'd do a little bit of their business. But with technology, those meetings over the years were able to be done much more efficiently outside of the conference. And when that started happening, it just became harder to justify the travel expense for the conference, you know, especially when all these meetings that people had to go to were keeping attendees from taking full advantage of all the things that an ALA conference has to offer, the speakers, etc. 
So it was decided that this needed to change. And in the place of midwinter, uh, the ALA, with input from its members, sort of created a show that was more, let's say it's smaller, more education-focused, and more hands-on. And that's what we have in LibLearnX. However, then, of course, came COVID-19. And then LibLearnX was supposed to debut last year in person. It was forced to go virtual only. So long story short, ALA designed a conference that we're still not really sure how it's going to play out in person. And then COVID changed the world completely. Uh, and it sort of delayed the in-person event of the show for a year. So as for what people can expect when they arrive in New, or New Orleans for LibLearnX, no one is really sure at this point. But whatever it is, we know this much. It really is only a first step toward a new winter library event uh, where members, ALA members, librarians, vendors, are really going to have a chance to sort of make it whatever they want it to be. And I think that's a really key point here. Uh, the future of conferences is wide open. The future of library conferences is wide open. The future of LibLearnX is really wide open. They're very much, as ALA officials say, in pilot mode. So I think it's important to see this show in January is only a first step. You know, but I do think if we see the energy that we saw at ALA and at PLA, ALA organizers are going to be very pleased. But here's the date you should really circle on your calendars, right? June, Chicago, ALA annual in ALA's hometown. And, you know, I think last year's ALA in D.C. was a little bit different because it was the first annual conference since 2019. So there was a lot of energy for that. I think LibLearnX in January is going to be different because it's brand new. So I think you'll see some energy around that as well. I think next year's ALA annual in Chicago, when we're kind of back to normal, normal-ish, I think that's going to offer us a huge clue about the future of library conferences and really all industry conferences. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program today. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, in the final weeks of 2022, Velocity of Content is looking back at the past 12 months of programs. When making a meal, we choose foods and flavors according to our appetites and our tastes. Whatever ends up on the menu, there are always fresh, wholesome ingredients from trusted sources. For all our information diets, the same care is advised for our own good health and for the good health of our communities. Dr. Tracy Brower explained why a balanced information diet is best. Confirmation bias is when we look for information that tends to agree with what we already believe. And these are really interesting times because we're managing information flow, but also there are lots of algorithms that are managing information flow. And we can find ourselves even unknowingly in echo chambers. Algorithms can work too well. So we're exposed to information that we already agree with and we're not exposed to enough diversity of information. And so I think we wanna be intentional here as well to expose ourselves to ideas that are new, expose ourselves to things that we may not agree with in order to stretch our thinking, in order to infuse diversity, new ideas, in order to learn more, in order to challenge ourselves so that we can either shift our point of view or recommit to our point of view. Recipes for a healthy information diet, next on CCC's podcast series. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. 
You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. 